Hey everyone, I'm Andrew, and you're listening to Small Efforts, a collaboration between Crit and Miss Grants. And hi, I'm Sean. Small Efforts is a show where we talk about cybersecurity, design, and the continuous small efforts it takes to build a business. Hey guys. What's up, guys? How's it going? Good. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Andrew and Sean. I'm really happy to be We're here. We're starting a podcast on that. It cut everything before. <laughs> no intro. Not that you need an intro. What a motley crew we've got here. <laughs> Do we need to like introduce Andrew? I mean, if anyone listens to this podcast and doesn't know who Great Noise is, I don't know what you're doing because we literally, it's half a podcast about yeah. design and security and just half a Grey Noise fan podcast. I think we should just keep this Grey Noise shilling going the entire time. <laughs> and I don't think we should stop at any point. I'm super for yeah. it. Do we accidentally create a content arm for Grey Noise? <laughs> <Just do this laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Grey Noise actually has a podcast. They just don't know it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They have no control well, over is, it. Fun fact, there is a podcast, a information security podcast that is literally called the Grey Noise podcast. No I don't know if they're still active. I swear to God. Huh. Yeah. I became aware of it like, I think maybe like six months after I'd started the company. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, I hope they're like... They don't think that I'm going to be mad about them. And I hope that they're not mad about me. And I think we've just been like living in peace nice. for the last like four years. So <laughs> I think I think we're good. And if they hear this, like you guys are cool. You guys are cool. Hopefully I'm cool with you. Like we're good. We can just keep doing our thing. I love it. I love it. I had a question I wanted to ask you just to like kick things off that maybe is basically an introduction. What is your sure. role these days? So these days I spend a ton of time meeting with all of the people who are actually doing the work at Grey Noise mm -hmm. and doing everything that I can to make sure that everything makes sense and that they have everything that they need to do the work, right? So now I do zero work, <laughs> right? I send emails slowly and I keep our board posted and I talk to customers a lot, which is something that I love to do and I'm never going to stop doing it. And I get people stoked about gray noise. I actually spend a lot of time like resolving when problems come up in the organization, whether it's like, hey, like this thing exploded or hey, like these two people are mad at each other for some reason. Right. Like I spend a lot of time like making sure that everything's cool and copacetic. So there's a lot of like kind of culture in practice stuff of like me trying to set the precedent of how I want everybody else to handle problems as they come up, like what I think is like the best way to do that. Let's see. I just got done doing. How do you think about when to solve some of those problems and when to like just coach people through solving the problems themselves? That's something that I struggle with is like figuring out when do I need to actually just jump in and fix this shit? And when do I need to not mm -hmm. jump in and like just try to help other people fix their own shit? So I think it's always the right thing to do to coach somebody else like how to do the thing themselves. Like I think 100% of the time, is basically like, hey, this is how I would think about this. These are like some of the tools that you can use to like open up a conversation and like make the person feel safe enough to like tell you how they really feel so that you guys can like get to the bottom of it, right? Like if you're at Grey Noise, we probably all want the same thing. Like we probably all want to work at a place that's awesome. We probably all want to get along with our coworkers. We probably all want to build a fantastic product and we probably all want the company to be as successful as possible, right? So like in those ways, it's like, cool, that's the 
the important stuff. So then the rest of it is like, okay, details on like, how do we in practice, what are the tools that we can kind of create that allow people to disagree in a way that doesn't mean that like they think that each other are stupid or something like that. Right. But yeah, I mean, my short answer is it's always the right thing to do to like coach somebody else on how to do a thing. And then I would just say like, if it's consistently not working, then it's like, all right, well, let's get together and like do something about it. Right. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. If I asked you this, that same question a year ago, you wouldn't have yet been yeah. able to say, I'm not doing the things like you would have still been doing a lot yeah. of product management and probably some engineering even maybe or sales. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I was more involved with sales and I was definitely like influencing the product directly mm -hmm. a lot more than I do now. But yeah, so like a tremendous amount has changed. Basically, like it is absolutely a full-time job aligning a group of about 30 people and making sure that a group of about 30 people are always like moving in the same direction. Like that in and of itself is indeed a full-time job. So you mentioned talking to customers is one of those things you don't ever want to let go of. Mm -hmm. How have you figured out what the things are that you don't want to let go of and the things that you need to let go of and yeah, need to let go of as quickly as possible? <laughs> yeah, I don't have a good answer. I guess my textbook answer would be I should be spending all my time doing only things that I can do. Everything else is like, okay, somebody else can do this. A lot of like customers, whether they're like small customers or like massive customers, like they want to talk to the founder and they want to talk to like the founding team. And it's like, it doesn't matter how big or small we get. Your security teams are trusting our calls that we're making. Like you might want to put a face to the name of and build a relationship with like the founding team or the CEO or whatever. That's like one anecdotal example of like no one else can do that. Right. And that thing like can't scale per se. Now, we can't always do that with literally every single customer, but like that, that is always going to be the case. It probably gets easier as there's more like structure around like the things that matter in different teams. And like as people understand like the what and the why, then like I don't actually have to be involved in like many things. Right. Like you guys get it. You guys know the figures, the strategy, like that stuff all makes sense. Like you guys are smarter than me. You guys are better than me at what you do. And, and it's your full time job. So like as opposed to me who just like parachutes in sometimes and I'm like, hey, look at me, I'm helping. And everyone's like, you know, you're actually not. So. <laughs> Maybe go back to CEOing. I feel like I'm stuck kind of in that middle right now where like I am still having to do the things and mm -hmm. but also starting to need to give up the things. And it's mm -hmm. so fucking hard to swap hats all the time and figure out when to have mm -hmm. which hat on. Sean, I'm sure you have started to feel some of that too. Yeah, I feel uh, like every month I'm doing one of my jobs incorrectly and the other two, okay. <laughs> and it's always this constant. None of them well. None yeah, of yeah, them yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. I just yeah, podcast no, 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 no. well. That's Zero. pretty much it. I am on time, ready to go every other Wednesday. <laughs> About to record. It's the best thing I do. I think it's pretty normal, like in an early stage company where it's like tiny and there's a very small number of people yep. who can do anything at all. The earlier people to be spending a lot of time doing stuff that is outside of the ideal world of what they would be doing, right? Or the things that only they can be doing. Like that seems pretty normal and standard, yeah. especially if it's like a smaller founding team. For sure. There was a point a couple months ago where you were doing polls on Twitter for like, hey, what mm -hmm. do you want to see in Gray Noise? Or so how did that go? Mm -hmm. How did that campaign work out? Did you I like that you called that a campaign and not just me like feverishly like blasting tweets into the ether yeah. and just like seeing what happened. Like that's a way better Yeah, that's a campaign. You, you are a good marketer, Thanks, man. Sean is this is one of Sean's superpowers. <laughs> Sean will take stuff that like he'll take me poking around the internet and turn it into research. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like I I really wish that I could have that like Branding. all the time. Like, you know, you know, you know, Andrew, that uh that really insightful like remark that you just made analyzing the situation and I'm like, "Oh yeah, I was just like shouting about something, but I really prefer what Sean said." <laughs> so the polls were basically like I think for what it's worth, I think there are a ton of companies that can be paralyzed by ambiguity and uncertainty in certain places, mm-hmm. right? Where there's basically, it's like, well, man, I mean, if people are using gray noise to do this, then that means that we need to optimize for this. I'm not saying that doing formal research and like doing customer engagement and stuff like that, like is not enough. And I'm not saying that it's like bad. If you already have access to like the crowd or like the people that what you're mm-hmm. talking about is the most relevant to, like ask them as directly as you possibly can, mm-hmm. right? Like this is actually one of the things that is so incredibly interesting about, sorry to take a tangent, but politics in 2021 is that like politicians have platforms on things like Twitter and they can like interact with their base like directly. There is as little friction and insulation between them and their people as humanly possible, right? And I do actually think that that is really, really powerful because it means that it can allow you to kind of like cut through a lot of the insulation between you and the people that you're trying to reach, you and the people that you're trying to get a hold of, or you and the people that you're trying to hear what they have to say and what's on their mind. And so that was a long-winded way of saying that I just had some stuff that I wanted to know what the kind of like Twitter, gray noise, either user or fan demographic had to say. And I remember my questions were like, what sucks about gray noise? And I had like a few big buckets of things that you could type like, or like that you could select. What's great about gray noise? Like, why do you use gray noise? Like what needs to be better about gray noise? And it was really interesting because I was actually just trying to figure out like, is what we think true the same thing that our people think is true? Like, are we off here? Mm -hmm. And I was looking for like basically really big changes, like anything that's like, oh my God, like 90% of people said this thing, but we thought it was this. Or this is not nearly as on other people's minds as it is on our minds, Mm -hmm. right? And all of that is valuable, useful data. Did you find that people were in agreement with you or did you find any of those big polarizations? We found that basically there's like a ton of people who don't use gray noise because they don't like understand gray noise, right? And we found a bunch of people who are basically like, gray noise is super cool, but like, I don't work a job that would require me to do it. Like, there's just nothing there for me, right? And I'm like, okay, this is like really, really useful information. There were a ton of people who were like a lot more people than I thought that were like more data explainability. Like I need to understand the data a little bit better and like stuff like that. And so those were all like really interesting things. Qualifying that feedback is good. 100% of those answers is from randos on Twitter. I have no idea what any of these, like who any of these people are, how much they've used gray noise. Like, I don't know anything. So it's totally just in mass aggregate. And so that was kind of one of the interesting things for me as well. Yeah, that would be hard. It could almost be distracting because it could be not the people you actually want to be speaking to answering your polls. And on Twitter, you don't see, you don't know who's answering. So you have no... No, you have absolutely no idea, right? But what's interesting to me about that is those are essentially the same problems we were trying to solve two and a half years ago when we first built the visualizer was like Mm -hmm. explaining the data and trying to like show people why it was useful and valuable. 
And we did it well enough that like a couple thousand people use it every day. So that's (laughs) cool. So we did it well enough there, but there's still a learning curve Mm -hmm. and there's still like, there's a concept of crossing the chasm, right? For businesses and in marketing where you're, you know, eventually, you know, you start with those early adopters, those innovators, and then you kind of move almost to like the larger enterprise and then kind of the mid market and whatever. And like further, further over towards like who are not super engaged or involved in a technology until it like makes sense to them. And they're like, oh yeah, like I should buy this. Like I get it. And I think that it's actually remarkably similar, like complex or innovative products where I think that are, especially that are doing new things is just that if you're kind of selling into a blue ocean or if you're solving a problem that hasn't been solved before, or if you're doing a new thing, you cannot underestimate how little your visitors and users know or understand about you. And you might think that you do. You might think that they all know, but you have like you have a massive collection bias because you're only talking to the people who get it. Mm-hmm right? You're never going to talk to the people who don't get it. It's very unlikely, especially during the pandemic where it's not like I'm running into randos all the time, right? It's not like I'm talking to the people who don't get it every day. The vast majority of people that I'm talking to like already get gray noise and they've been using it for a long time. So I need to get, I need to make sure that we're not forgetting about the rest of the like 98% of the security community that like doesn't necessarily know what it is and what it can do for them. That's actually a huge advantage of those awkward conversations at like when you do stumble across somebody at a security conference, I imagine it's getting a little bit harder for you to stumble across someone who has no fucking clue who you are. But when you do and you tell them what you do and then they repeat it back to you, the things you hear in that like repeating it back to you are so interesting. Yeah, they are. And I think that like really good marketing is usually stuff that comes from the users and the customers themselves, right? Like it's like their perception of what you do, which is always going to be more accurate than what you think you do, like just by design, which is really weird because like you can be utterly convinced that you do blank. But if everybody else thinks that you do something else, you actually do that other thing poorly. This is why positioning is so hard. And yeah, it is. It absolutely is. It's very, very difficult. Yeah, I remember in the earlier days, you would hop onto a podcast or a show and people are like, oh, so you scan the internet, right? You guys are like Shodan. I remember that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And we still it happens a lot less now, but it's still a super, super common misconception that we scan the Internet. And a lot of it, a lot of it, some of it is like UX, Mm -hmm. right? Some of it is like that. I just like shamelessly like borrowed as much as I possibly could from what was awesome about Shodan. Mm -hmm. And they're like their web interface. And like, if it works, it works. Right. And I've told John that before. I know I went to like just poke around Shodan the other day and I was like, huh. This looks familiar. This looks Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he did it first. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm not <laughs> saying I'm not saying Shodan copied us. I'm like, "Oh, right. I forgot how oh, much we, we were inspired Shodan. by Shodan." Oh. No, we call that inspiration. Inspiration. Right, we were right, right, heavily yeah, yeah. We were... inspired by Shodan. Exactly. Right, right, right. Exactly. Right. We were never too arrogant so... to borrow someone else's idea, right? <laughs> It's the highest form of flattery. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and so we still run into this all the time where it's like people will think that we scan the internet. And for certain good reasons, like part of it is that like there's a lot of people on Twitter who like aggregate useful links, like useful security services and links and like free services. And a lot of the time it will be like four different internet scanning services and then gray noise. And I'm like, well, okay, I can see how that would happen. And if you just land on it, Right. If you just click a link, land on it and like there's maybe one IP address or something and you see that we're labeling it, we're like, oh, here's just five different ports and some date ranges and something that says.
says that this box is compromised, then it's super easy to think that, right? It's not a hard thing to kind of like get twisted around. And then hopefully the person would read a little bit more and learn like, oh man, no, that's not the case at all. But really the buck stops at us for making sure that that's incredibly clear the second that somebody lands on something. My design mind immediately goes to like, how can we visually show people what they're landing on? And then I'm like, nope, nope, nope. That's not. Nope, that's nope, not, nope, nope. Not your job. Not what you need to do right now. <laughs> but yeah, you're exactly right. I want to circle back to just like how much your role has fucking changed. Because in a lot of ways, what you're describing is kind of like what I imagine getting to someday of like, you know, I've often said y'all are at like, what, 25 ish people now. So we're at exactly 27 right now. I think we're going to be at 28 on Monday. Damn. Yeah. Where were you a year ago? Exactly one year ago. I believe we were at like 10. Yeah. And like two years ago, it was three. I was like, yeah, three or four. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. So like 25 to 30 people is often like, it's pretty much as big as I ever want to be like that. (laughs) Sure. Yep. But getting to that place where you do have people who are doing, like someone who is dedicated to doing all of the kind of major buckets of things in the company is like mm-hmm. sounds in some ways like a dream. What are the ways that it just fucking sucks or it's really hard or that you're just like, what are the new stresses that you're dealing with? So there is a completely different set of stresses now. One of those is I think very common for people who are entered into a management or a leadership role for the first time, it's that jarring feeling where you have no direct control over the thing that someone produces, right? Because you're not doing it. It's really hard to grapple with for the first time. And the smaller a team is, the more involved you are with the work itself. So like you can still have some control, But like there are people who work for people who work for people who work for me at Grey Noise now, which means and I'm still the leader of those people. And so like my job is still to make sure that they are also successful. Right. And that they have like what they need to be successful, obviously less so than the rest of the people who are closer to that person. But yeah, I mean, I think like the first thing is just like the jarring aspect of not being in control and not being in the know about everything. Right. Uh, just a ton of stuff happens at Gray Noise now that I'm like, I didn't know that happened. Having known you for a little while, I think you're someone who is very comfortable relinquishing control. doesn't really need control of anything, right? Like, you're very happy. <laughs> I really want to reach through and <laughs> through this right now. I was like, you started talking. And I was like, wow, this is a really nice thing. Oh, wait a second, <laughs> Andrew, Jesus. No, you're right. I mean, like, I am a huge control freak, right? A hundred I think we all are. It's hard to be an entrepreneur without being a control freak because literally the thing you're doing is saying, no, I want control. I want to be the one. Right. I want to take my future into control. The funniest part is that, like, there is no control in the market. You cannot predict and control, like, what's going to happen, right? You can't control anything. So that is actually, like, the hilarious paradox of this. So I started seeing a leadership coach. Awesome. And she's incredible. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I kind of like learned how to hash out is that like people always do what they think the right thing is like they they always do what they think the right thing is and so like there's a question of whether or not you two are in agreement on what the right thing is but if you are in agreement on what the right thing is then like the details will be a little different like they'll do something that's not exactly like what you do but like they'll do and build or sell or design the thing that you've enumerated like what matters right and the why 
and then they're going to do it their way and you're in alignment of like what good is. And so at the end of the day, like my biggest, the biggest part of my job is that everyone at Grey Noise should always know like what are the most important things and why and what's my part in doing that? Like what's my piece of doing that? What's my share? What's my chunk, right? And as long as everyone kind of always knows all the time what the most important things are and why and what their part of it is, and maybe what everyone else's part of it is, then that means that it, everything kind of flows a lot easier. Yeah, I've worked with a bunch. I've tried to work with like several business coaches over the years. And to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest, like I've never found one who is as good as my therapist. You've that's hilarious. <laughs> you, <laughs> like, honestly, that doesn't surprise me even a right? little bit. Like, I've felt the exact same thing at times. How has this person been? And like, how is it different? The leadership coaching you're doing, how is it different than some of the therapy you've done? I have been deeply in therapy for probably, God, like 16, 17 years now. And so like super, super, super familiar. I'm newer to therapy, but have also been deeply into it for more like three years and should have been deeply into it for 16 years. It just took me a while to get there. Hey man, it's never too late. It's never too late to take the trip inside. (laughs) But I think that the primary difference is that A therapist will never tell you, like, quit fucking around and stop feeling sorry for yourself and get your shit together. You have people that are relying on you. You're in charge. You don't have anyone you can possibly complain about. It's you, right? And a therapist is never going to tell you something like that, right? And because like in a lot of ways, like that isn't something that you can do much with in your personal life without actually kind of like understanding and breaking down like a lot of other parts. But like leadership and management and business is like there are certain things like that are uncomplex that you just have to hear like some hard truths and some hard realities about and maybe like some tough love or however you want to hear it. My executive coach, she will very regularly just basically like I'll start talking about something and she'll just be like, shut the fuck up. Stop. Right. Like, what are you going to do with this? Right. Like fix this or don't, but don't complain about it. Right. Like do something or do nothing and suck it up. Right. But like you can't just sit around and complain about it. And like that is the kind of thing that you're never really going to get from a therapist because you're paying them to listen to you complain in certain ways. Right. Yeah. Interesting. I'm trying to think now if my therapist, my therapist has definitely told me like, you're wrong or like well yeah 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 yeah. but yeah that's interesting also that sounds like a really fucking good executive coach i mean oh she's incredible she's absolutely incredible yeah i wonder if her approach would differ with somebody else because i imagine you were someone who would really value and sort of respect that like kind of direct confrontation i wonder if there was someone else so she models her coaching actually after like a number of things that are kind of similar to like an mbti so like it's similar mm-hmm. to a myers-briggs but it's i actually i can't remember what it is i wish that i could it, it's your instinctive drive that's actually mm-hmm. what it is instinctive drive and so I can guarantee you that it's different. Also, to be clear, she's not like that all the time with me. She's only like that when like I deserve it. So, uh, yeah. Super interesting. I've been curious for a while. We've probably even talked about it, Andrew. But like a lot of companies do publish like values, like three to five values. We have like four or five on our site. And interestingly, we had a very similar experience with words where like I really wanted one of our values to be creativity. And 
like our team just hated the word creativity, which was shocking to me. I was like, you all are the most creative people I know. How do you hate this word? Right. They settled on craftsmanship because it felt like less wishy-washy, I think. It felt more oh, like, sure. solid, which was really sure. interesting. I mean, well, to be fair, there is something like really frustrating about going to a company's values and then being like so like just such like vague platitudes mm-hmm. that you're just like, Wait, what? Like, oh, you want to be a positive force? Like, yeah, everyone <laughs> wants to be a positive force. I want to be a negative force. Like, it's never going to happen. And so, like, that was one of the reasons that I actually took the initial approach of just being, like, ultra specific and itemized with yeah, the different they're... principles. Because I was just like, what does that mean? In the author's mind, the more vague it is, the more it could mean. But in reality, the more vague it is, the less it literally means, mm-hmm. right? When it actually hits other people. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about the principles a lot lately. Mm-hmm. I would say like refactoring them with all of the lessons learned over the last like year or two. Mm-hmm. Ian Coldwater on Twitter, they like roasted some of the the principles alive. And I looked at their feedback and I was just like, oh yeah, this is really good feedback. <laughs> like, like I did not realize like how some of this stuff was coming off to people. And so I've taken a lot of that stuff and we're basically like redoing a lot of it right now. We're remixing the principles right now with all of the kind of information that we've learned and like lessons learned. I'm actually doing that right now. And it it feels great to do because now looking at them, even though there's like a lot of really good nuggets in there that are still like super true, I hate how I wrote them out, the style that I wrote them out and like how little thought that I put into certain things. And I've grown a lot since then, I think, I hope to be able to realize that like some of those are like, yeah, these aren't really like conveying who we are accurately anymore. So we're literally on Thursday and Friday going to be doing some of the early work to define (laughs) some of our own principles. So we've had values for a long time. And but what we've started to feel like is missing. We have values right now. We have processes processes are like, how do you do this one thing very specifically? And then we have values, Mm -hmm. which are like, how should we think about like broadly who we want to be? Right. And then but what has felt like is missing is kind of what I think the principles are trying to be and what they do a pretty good job of, even if the language can be reworked, which is like, how should crit think about like we've been jokingly calling it the crit way, which just because it sounds super culty, but like the way that things (laughs) should be done, not at a Mm-hmm. like a tactical, this is exactly what you do here and not yep. at that super high level. It's really more of a vibe. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, like, what should we care about when we're thinking about designing products for clients? What should we care about when we're communicating with clients in Slack? Like, how should we think about the right way to do things? Right. And so we're going to be trying to do some reflection of our own and starting. It's interesting how as we grow and you have I'm guessing have experienced this. A lot of the stuff that I used to think was kind of bullshit starts to feel more and more important. Like things like principles. And like at one point in time, I sort of thought values were a little silly and wishy-washy. And then I was like, oh no, values are actually really powerful. And then it was like principles. Lately, we've been doing some early work to also define like a mission and like sort of vision statement Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which initially I was like, really, do we need this? But at the same time, like, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> we, we do. Yeah. Like resoundingly. Right. Because the more you grow and the more that like people come and go, then the more that you realize that like a lot of the a lot of the kind of like the why is it can be kind of ephemeral and it can be like in people's brains, mm-hmm. but it's not like written out anywhere. Right. And 
I also think that you really need to always be able to ask yourself the question, like, are we doing a good job? Mm-hmm. Like, are we do how good of a job are we doing? Right. And there, there has to be some way to figure that out. We could look at revenue. Right. But there's obviously way more involved in revenue. Revenue is like a really strong signal of how much the business community and the market gives a shit about you. And so like how good of a job you're doing in kind of like that way, it's a good metric of that. It's kind of like an arbitrary score that many, 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 many people believe in. And so it is a extremely valuable metric, but it is absolutely not enough to measure like how good of a job the company's doing at accomplishing whatever it is that it's trying to accomplish, right? You have to be able to say like, like this new project that we're doing or this thing that we're going to do, this endeavor that we're going to undertake, like how is that going to help us do the mission? Like, how is that moving us closer to the mission, right? And you want people to really feel that with everything that they do. And so that's why I think it's really important. There's also a really big piece of like burnout prevention. Like all the research Mm. that I've read and heard about fighting burnout is it's not enough to just take time off or to like manage work-life balance and everything. People have to feel like they have a purpose and like the thing that they're doing is is making an impact in some way. And, you know, we can roll our eyes at all the people who are sort of doing mission badly by saying like, we just want to make the world a better place. But that doesn't mean we we should throw it out entirely, which I think is what I'm finally realizing. Like, oh, no, they're just because there are bad examples of this doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I think that you hit the nail on the head that for people to prevent one of the best things that can prevent burnout is just feeling impactful, feeling purpose in what you're doing and feeling like your work matters and that your work is being like valued and used by someone. To be completely honest, it's the thing that drives a lot of people that work in jobs that are like very like low paying and that they could in a second go and work somewhere else and make, you know, twice, three times as much money or something like that. But they don't. And the reason that they don't is because they're trying to have an impact in a way that they know or that they feel really confident is like making the world better or like them giving them an opportunity to like do their part in kind of like yeah. changing stuff. Yeah. Do you all find, question for both of you, not just Andrew, do you all find that you regularly mm-hmm. like have to kick yourself and go like, that's only in your head. You haven't actually said that to somebody. You haven't articulated that. <laughs> How would they know? Like, <laughs> You dumbass. John, I want to hear your answer your mind. first. <laughs> <sighs> I think I've made a more deliberate practice in like hopping in a slack huddle with someone and going like, so we're also rewriting our values and principles and all of that and i think like this like phrase of like doing your life's best work has been just in my head over and over and over again and i think that for the first time i said it to someone on a slack cuddle because like because someone was asking like okay this is like a super small client like how much like effort should we put into this and i think i went like no like listen like a lot like just do it really really well like do do your life's best work Mm -hmm. but yeah, that was in my head for like a year. I th- or not a year. It's only been we've only been around for so long. It's been in my head for about six months, but it feels like it's been in my head for a year or more. Andrew, I regret to inform you that I have the exact opposite problem. <laughs> I think there's a lot of stuff that I say that people are like, wow, I really wish you would have left. That in my head. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wow, I really wish I would have left that in my head. 
That's you know, because I have the very unfortunate trait where I don't think I'm capable of thinking about things unless I say them out loud. I'm, I just don't think I can. If you were to tell me like, hey, Andrew, like, like, what do you think about what do you think about this? I would basically have to say, I don't know. Let me talk about it so I can figure out how I feel. Right. You're in and good company. It we- is not not a good trait to have. <laughs> Well, that's unfortunate news because we literally started a podcast because we're both verbal processors and needed to like talk shit out. At least I am a verbal processor for sure. So I feel like Sean is a little bit more intentional. (laughs) No, no. I think I have ideas in my head and just like swirl in there, but I can't make a decision until I, until it comes out of my mouth on this podcast specifically, to be honest. (laughs) We were talking about mission when you and I were like, living together and you were talking about wanting to start a company Mm -hmm. one day your goal Mm -hmm. was to sell for 30 million dollars and spend the rest of your life making music great noise is now worth probably more than 30 million (laughs) dollars it is what is your goal now and that's sort of different from asking what is the mission of gray noise but i'm more no no no, no. it's super yeah it's super different because i'm not gray noise anymore and gray noise is not me anymore right and so that's very very they are similar but different and they're related but different, right? Because I am leading the organization, but it is not me. It is a collection of almost 30 people that are really good at what they do and excited to build cool stuff that is solving real problems. I just keep waiting for that day where we're gonna we're gonna roll up to work one day and be like, all right, so what's next? And everyone's like, just quiet. And we're like, really? That's it? All right, well, we're done here. Pack it up, let's go home, right? And the thing is that, I am actually like obsessed with just doing more of the stuff that we're doing that's working to more users, to more customers, to more problems with more kinds of data. And I would say that my biggest goal is that if we ever sell gray noise, I want every single employee at the company to say, I would absolutely work for Andrew again. And I would absolutely do that all over again. Like this was worth it to me. And so I think my number one goal, just in terms of this, is that I should be able to look every single employee in the eye and be like, did we do a good job on this? And like, would you do this again? And I want as many people as humanly possible to say yes. I want to give you some major props for personal growth, because literally what I just heard I'm overusing the word literally. What I just heard, not literally. <laughs> We're millennials, man. We can't help it. <laughs> Metaphorically, what I just heard was a shift from your goal being like sort of an end point to you are now more focused on the, it sounds corny, but you are now more focused on the journey and the journey is now what's driving you more. Like that's what I heard in that answer. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's absolutely true. I think that the truth is that you... A lot of the time when companies kind of sell or finish or whatever, or crash and burn or whatever, a lot of the time it's because people are just kind of done and they don't want to keep going. And obviously, like, look, something, something, shareholder value, something, something, liquidity event, something, something, investor expectations, right? Something, something, startups, like blah, 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 blah. But if you aren't having fun and you aren't engaged and growing while you're doing it, then you're putting all of your eggs into that like exit number basket, right? You're basically asking everyone who comes to the company, like, yeah, just slog through all this shit with me and maybe it'll be worth it. I know it sucks right now, but maybe it'll be worth it. 
And like, I think it will. And so, you know, maybe it will. And like, that just doesn't feel right to me. It really doesn't. So there are like, don't get me wrong. We still slog through shit at Grey Wolves, right? <laughs> the way that you do it and while you do it and really like learning and growing and being thoughtful about the way that you do it as you're doing it is actually way more important than kind of exactly where you end up. For what it's worth, the best bands in the world are the ones that just kind of like just played together for a really long time. And like a lot of the best companies in the world are the ones that just kept it together and they just kept going. I do actually think it's like way more important to be thoughtful about what you're doing while you're doing it and making sure that like everyone is learning, growing, having as much fun as they possibly can. If nothing else, maybe it's a Jedi mind trick to get the best result humanly possible. Like I said, like the best bands, best companies, like they just keep going. They just keep playing. They just keep producing, right? And so from my perspective, like that's actually just a lot more important to me. Maybe we'll IPO someday, literally just because this is our strategy is just like keep going, provide more value to more people, have as much fun as you can while you're doing it. For a long time, I have said that my goal for Crit is to like create a job that I don't want to leave. <laughs> like make it such a good place of to work that I don't want. To I exit. think that's really good. I think that's really good. I think that there are days where I <laughs> feel like shit and I'm like feel overwhelmed yeah. and I'm like, fuck that goal. <laughs> Let's yeah. get rid of this thing. But then when I'm in a <laughs> healthier headspace, I think that is still maybe the best goal. I think that there's something to be said every time I meditate. I have like a little mantra in my head that I remind myself. I always remind myself that every single day I'm signing up for that day, right? I am deciding that I want to go and like do that thing, right? And the reason that I do that is that I remind myself that like we have very little control right now, broadly, over like a ton of different things. And I like to have that nice little reminder that like I'm not allowed to complain about how bad stuff is because I signed up for this every single day. Like no one is holding a gun to my head. I can just like I could just get in a plane and leave and no one would ever see me ever get like I could just disappear. Right. And like I could just go. I could just not show up to work. I could just like not go and do anything. Right. But every single time that I am meditating, I always remind myself, like, I'm sitting in this room right now because I want to be sitting in this room right now. I want to get ready right now. And I'm going to work. I'm signing up to go to work. And even if it sucks, you can still say like, God, this is going to suck. Like, this is going to be terrible. Like today's not going to be good. There's all these problems, but you're still signing up. Right. And you don't have to, but you're signing up. Are you meditating every day now? Not every day, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Like I'm too, I can't. It's fucking hard. It's, it's too hard right now. I think at one point I had a solid like month of meditating every day, by which I mean, mm-hmm. like there would be weeks where there were two days I didn't meditate and a week where sure, sure I'm sure. convinced everyone who says they have a daily meditation habit is just saying like mostly daily, mostly daily ish. I had daily, I think five years ago. I think that was when I started meditating and meditating. Meditation changed my life. It is incredible. I mean, it is. It's mm-hmm. it's so annoying because I feel like everyone who talks about meditation is kind of obnoxious. But part of that yeah, is because that's true. I mean, but look at us. We're pretty. obnoxious. Yeah, we are. So that checks out. <laughs> yeah. But part of that is because it actually is kind of fucking awesome. No, it is. It was life changing. And so when I started meditating for I want to say maybe that first kind of six months or so, I meditated every day, every single day, every single morning. And 
one of the things that caught me about it was that I missed a day one time and I felt terrible. And then I realized this is how I feel all the time if I'm not meditating. You know what I mean? But it was just the first time that it hit me. Like before I started meditating, that was how I felt every day. And it was jarring. It's medicine. It is. Sean is a really big fan of self-care of all kinds. Mm-hmm. You know, meditation, baths, travel. I like that Andrew does this thing where he... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like how I'm also not a control freak. <laughs> <laughs> this is just <laughs> me being a dick to my two favorite people in the whole yeah, world, yeah. apparently. Sean, <laughs> yeah. do you do those things? I meditate about once every two months. No, oh. I don't meditate. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I you also gotta, take baths on it, about once. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can like feel the audience right now. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Your green noise clients are just like, he meditates in the news. <laughs> this is, this is, oh, God. <laughs> something, something. The best marketing is controversial. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, All press yeah, is good press. Know. All good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm waiting well, on the we'll, we'll cert- tech crunch. The jury's out on that one. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just found out today that you guys were junior high school <laughs> friends yeah. or have known each other since junior high. We've known each other since middle school. Yeah, that's junior high school is middle school. Oh, high school whatever. is. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Andrew and I went to we went to middle school and high school together. We played church league basketball together. We were both like not good. No, <laughs> very bad. <laughs> The way that me and Andrew are, are always going to be friends is kind of like nuclear mutually assured destruction. <laughs> like we knew each other in middle school, right? right? Like we could sink each other at any moment, <laughs> right? And so uh, actually probably Andrew could sink me. He was, he was a really good dude. But uh, So my impression of you in like middle school, high school. I cannot believe this is about to happen. <laughs> what do you we think I'm going to say? Though. What do you think I'm going to say? I have no idea. Dude, I don't even remember anything before I was like <laughs> 14. My genuine like impression of you in middle school and high school when like this is a total characterization that's not fair to you. I thought of you as essentially like Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller? Yeah. My hero. <laughs> <laughs> That is the last thing that I would expect. I had very few friends. I was like spending all of my time <laughs> on the computer. That is bullshit. Andrew was like the coolest fucking person. Way like you weren't like. Oh, well, I was cool that I didn't give a shit what anyone thought. You weren't hanging out with like the preppy kids or whatever. But you were like, I remember in college finding out that you never drank in high school. And it boggled my mind because you were friends with people all the people still who, don't believe who me. did. And you were like at parties, you just weren't drinking. Yeah. And something about I didn't drink. Yeah, like, I've never seen Andrew Morris pick up a beer or a cigarette. <laughs> I, okay. Or, all right. All right. I'm feeling any. a little attacked <laughs> right now. <laughs> no, Andrew, you're right. People don't believe me. Like people didn't believe me. And like I remember I would show up to class and like I would stay up all night, like doing computer stuff. I all my life. I would stay up all night like looking at Wireshark. <laughs> and I would go and then I would go to class the next day. And my eyes would be all red and I'd be sleeping in class. And everyone was always like, Andrew, like, smokes a shitload of weed. I'm like, I've never smoked weed in my life. And <laughs> but like, part of it, every, too, like, was all, was of always, <laughs> all of your friends did. All of your friends did. Oh, all of my friends. My friends were 
drug dealers. My friends were like boozing hard. Fantastic like, people too. I, I love a lot of oh, them. Great <laughs> I'm still friends with all of them to be clear. But like, no, honest to God, like it was everyone was just doing bad shit. And like, I don't know. I mean, I couldn't tell you what's what about any of that. And like, I honestly don't know. I To this day, I don't know why I was so against the idea of me drinking when I was in school. I think that it was either, either that I just believed everyone who said that if you if you start doing that kind of stuff too young, like it can be bad. It can have like bad effects. Like you can just do some dumb shit. So there's a, a part of me that thinks that I just believed that that was true. And so I just kind of decided, like, I'm just not going to do anything for a little while. There's a part of me that knew that I would end up having problems with alcohol, which I've had problems with alcohol. Right. And there was a part of me that kind of knew that somewhere deep down that was like, oh, man, maybe you might be in a place someday where you have hard time with booze. And, and I have before. And then and then I would say, like, the third thing is like, I just did not like and I do not like being out of control and I don't like being in situations Full where I'm like, circle, yeah. baby. <laughs> yep. Yep. I would see like my friends that would be like shit faced and like just in all these like humiliating and embarrassing situations and stuff like that. I also, to be fair, they'd be shit faced and be having a ton of fun. Right. But like, I would see this kind of stuff and I'd just be like, Nope, Nope, not me. I am already like, I already have to roll the dice every time I say a sentence for someone to not think that I am a fucking weirdo. I am not going to be like drinking and like doing drugs because then that's going to it's going to go an overdrive. And so, yeah, I just didn't want to. That's it. I also didn't drink in high school and hung out with a lot of the same people. But I think for me, it was just pure anxiety. <laughs> I think I was just terrified of getting in trouble. <laughs> You could probably drink that off. <laughs> I'm, I'm, just, I'm kidding. That's terrible. I'm it sorry. is so fascinating to me, though, to hear your impression of yourself. Everyone who met Andrew liked him. Like, it was like a cross clicks mm -hmm. at lunch. Like, everyone would eat outside and there were pods yeah, that's of right. people. And literally every pod liked Andrew Morris. Like, every pod loved Andrew. And he would just, like, bounce around between them. And so it is fascinating to me that you don't see that the same way. I'm not from from South Carolina and everyone that we went to school with is from from South Carolina, mm -hmm. right? And so like part of it is like I'm not you, I'll never be you. And then but honest to god, I think part of it is also just high schoolers hate themselves. Like most high schoolers oh, yeah, hate themselves. Oh yeah, 100%. Unless they yeah, are and the city like, people who were peaking in high school. Right, right, which that sucks. <laughs> so I just really appreciate you saying that a lot. It just means a lot for me to hear, even like, you know, whatever. It just, it just sounds nice. It feels nice. It is demonstrably true that I was friends with all of the different social groups, with the exception of probably the most popular kids. I was not really friends with the most popular kids, and I'm very okay with Although that. Although even then, there were like the people who were actually genuinely interesting people of those like most popular kids, you were friends with. Those people are Yeah, cool. you were friends yeah, with. Yeah, those people genuinely. are cool. They're still cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sean's over here just like <laughs> I'm just having I'm just having flashbacks <laughs> to high school where I did not have <laughs> no. Real quick, can you just tell everyone for the record the names of your screamo bands? <laughs> I refuse. <laughs> I refuse. I just have a burning question that I was prompted with at the beginning of this podcast. Before you joined, Andrew, you seen each other in middle school, but then I also hear I mean both of you ended up in startup land. 
but I also hear that there are mm-hmm. potential. Andrew before me. Oh, really? Okay. Did not. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of. But you worked at startups before me is what, yeah. I, is what I meant. Yeah. Like, and then, yeah. Gotcha. So for those who don't know, Andrew like dropped out of high school, paid his way through cybersecurity school. And like, while all of us were freshmen in college who had no fucking clue what we were doing, Andrew was making amazing money working in DC as like a senior pin tester. Maybe not a senior pin tester, but you were a pin tester. I mean, to be clear, I was, it was senior was in the job title because it was a consulting job that they wanted to be able to bill as much money (laughs) as humanly possible for us with. I don't know how I, in what universe I was senior. I'd been, I was like, it was 18 years old. (laughs) I wasn't senior in anything. I wasn't even a senior in high school. (laughs) (laughs) You actually weren't. (laughs) (laughs) No, I like, I literally didn't make it that far. But yeah, so when Andrew says he was like, I worked for startups before him, like I kind of got into startups and really got into computer shit more in in college. And that's like how we really bonded and became super tight is Mm -hmm. we just started like talking startup shit all the time. Mm -hmm. So speaking of you guys talking startup shit, I hear that there were startups that never made it to light between the two of you. Oh my God. Oh my God. Do you want to do the pitch for for Gifter or Casanova or do you want... (laughs) But, oh, both. I actually forgot about Gift. Yeah. I couldn't have forgotten about Casanova. <laughs> but yeah, so I'll do the pitch. All right, so Gifter. Mm-hmm. This, oh, this was, man, this one, was going to change the world. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I can do both. Whatever, who cares? So Gifter was a service. Mm-hmm. It was a gift giving or a gift like matching service where you log in with Facebook and you tell it. So then it, it hoovers in all of your you know data about your friends and then you tell it which friend you're trying to get a gift for. And it data mines the shit out of them <laughs> to figure out something that they are like guaranteed to like. That basically feels like a crazy personalized gift that is like so aligned with their real interests that they're like, holy crap, like this is incredible, right? And it could, you know, remind you of like things that are coming up using like your friend's birthdays and stuff like that, right? It was sick. Didn't make it. Andrew, you can do Is this pre or post Cambridge Analytica? Uh, definitely pre. Oh God, this was oh, so way pre. This was Cambridge this was Analytica. probably like yeah. 2013, Ahead of 2014 that we were talking about this. Oh, actually, that that's actually later than I thought. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So it might have been around. Yeah, I think we wimped out because it was like gonna technically violate Facebook's terms of service, and mm-hmm. so we were like, ah, maybe this isn't a good idea. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, yeah, but but like I've read some documents lately, <laughs> and like I don't really know how much I believe in those <laughs> terms of service after all. <laughs> Not at all. So if I pitch Casanova, I will try to be honest and pitch it the way that it came about. And then I will pitch it the way that I wish it had come about the way that like I would build it now if I were building it. So Casanova was a condom delivery service. Ooh, okay. It was essentially built on the very brilliant notion that like teenagers were embarrassed to ask for condoms. And so maybe if we just ship them to them, it would be easier than like walking into a CVS and having to stare an attendant in the face while you purchase condoms. At the time, it was very much built on like embarrassment and like not wanting to have to do this. In retrospect, if you're too embarrassed to purchase condoms from another human being, you might want to think twice about having sex. (laughs) (laughs) but i think there would be a way to build it that like 
I mean, literally, we called it Casanova. Like, yeah. we were going to have a ton of puns and, like, just, like, go crazy mm-hmm. with the branding. We were going to deliver stuff in boxes that were packaged up like other products mm-hmm. so that you could do it, like, if you lived at your parents' house or if you lived in, like, a dorm or something like that. So you'd get, like, you know, like a shoebox or yeah. something, and it's got a bunch of condoms in it. And and the one of the ideas was, like, we can basically do this with anything that that is, like, sexual in mm-hmm. nature that people would be embarrassed to buy at the store. Mm-hmm. Could have really taken off. Yeah. In retrospect, I wish that we had been a little bit more like forward thinking and not like stereotypical 18 year old guys and had thought about because I think it could be really cool to build it from like a very sex positivity standpoint. If you built the branding around sex Mm -hmm. positivity and like consent and trying to educate people about sex and like that could be fucking cool. At the time, it was more just like I was like. I'm embarrassed to go buy condoms from the UBS guy. <laughs> if I'm being honest oh and transparent, God. that is why it that is why it came about, <laughs> and not be. But I wish it had been more like sex positive. Andrew's lying. We were geniuses. Yeah, yeah. We were just misunderstood geniuses. Yeah, misunderstood horny <laughs> so geniuses. We, we were right. The world was Well, wrong. the world wasn't ready for it because now there's last mile delivery. The world delivery. just wasn't ready. We were honestly before. <laughs> you really were. You know what I mean? Because I mean, there's last mile, yeah. there's last mile delivery services. So Babeland, if you're listening to our, you know, or any sex shop can have last mile sex toy delivery or last mile sex. This is hands down <laughs> the most broadly ranging gray noise conversation I've ever had in my life. Mission accomplished. In this episode, we're going to talk about internet background noise, sex positivity, <laughs> middle school dynamics, alcohol. <laughs> Tell me it's not the most fun conversation, gray noise conversation you've ever had. Oh, no, I'm having a blast. People are going to people are going to listen to this and like they're going to start and be like, oh, let me fast forward a little bit just to see what this <laughs> episodes about and that's how we thought about sex positivity what <laughs> the goal the title of this episode is just going to be how many investors can we lose by the <laughs> by the end of the episode oh god yeah. or new investors oh, or man. new investors new investors yeah. in the new gray noise side project I think I finally let go of the domain name I held on to it for years but I, that's I finally funny. let go of it Damn. That's funny. Oh, man. If you had an office, you could call it your uh, condominium. Oh, God. <laughs> when Andrew and I lived together, I would make horrible puns all the time. And his response was mm-hmm. somehow the most scathing and most like sweet and considerate thing ever. Anytime I made a joke like that, he would just look at me and say, you're going to make a great dad. <laughs> Well, who comes up with the puns for Grey Noise? Because Grey Noise puns. So this is kind of going back to early life, which we might want to move on from so we can scratch it. (laughs) We can go down an era. We can talk about the fact that you two lived together at some point and that Andrew's house (laughs) became like a startup launch apartment because we did. Josh also lived with you. and Yep, me and Josh lived together as well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So one of my favorite stories. So one, I feel like in a in a way, I don't think it was the very first version of Grey Noise, but what I like to tell people the first version of Grey Noise was, like, before it was Grey Noise, I think you and I were living together after you had built the very first version of Animus, right? That ultimately... So, the little fun thing that I don't even know that you know is that it was when you and me were sitting down and programming Casanova that I checked on the honeypot 
the first yes. ever honeypot yes. that I had ever Shit, installed. I remember, and I, I looked at it, and I was like, "Who are all these people like attacking this thing?" Like, I just put it up like an hour ago. We were sitting at the incubator in Columbia, South we Carolina, were sitting there, and I looked at it, and I'm being completely honest with you when I tell you that if I would not have done that, gray noise would not exist right now. Fucking wild. My favorite iteration of Grey Noise was when we were living together and you took your honeypots and mapped all of the ports that people were scanning to literal music notes. That time I actually did mean to use the word literal. Yeah. And played this god awful (laughs) sound. It was like the worst sound you've ever heard in your life. Because it was just like, it sounded like a spider on a keyboard, like a big spider on a keyboard. That's kind of where the concept of background noise of the internet came from, right? So the thing that you're talking about was what I used to like colloquially refer to as the world's most inefficient musical instrument. (laughs) Because I wrote NPENG scripts that would fire the exact sequence of packets that would play a actual song. So I would stimulate like music on the internet by blasting our sensors with the right notes. And I remember writing that ACDC song, Thunderstruck. I remember like, and I did that. And then I did, so I, I wrote a script that did that. I wrote a script that did like Mary Had a Little Lamb. And then just the demons took over my brain and I wrote a MIDI, like an M-I-D-I MIDI, MIDI to like this system converter that would eat a MIDI file and it would create the right scan traffic in ports to like blast to this thing so I could play arbitrary MIDI files so I could download like the MIDI file for like an Eminem song or like I could download like the MIDI file for like the Mario theme song or for like something like that and then you'd play it and obviously like there's so many moving pieces to this that it sounded like shit <laughs> it sounded terrible and so that was my like running joke that it's like the world's most inefficient musical instrument there's a video on the internet somewhere of me like trying to play a song at a conference that I was like speaking at you have to really dig for it it was in San Francisco like i don't i don't know like 7 years ago or something but i always thought that was just like a fun goofy way to like explain to people how noisy the internet is is by like turning it into literal noise I mean, i still think that that's like a really interesting thing that nobody's done before if you do a little bit of pitch like not pitch correction but if you forced it to be in the same key and you added a couple things of that would make it like rightfully dynamic then you could make it beautiful but it's kind of cooler if it's ass ugly sounding. Your like musical nerd just came out in full force there. It came out hard. Yeah. It came out hard. <laughs> hard. Yeah. So my other two stories from living together, there was the time that you were trying to catch Martin Shkreli in a lie. And so we had to like rush yeah. to SoCo to use the gigabit yep. internet to download like yep. the entire blockchain. That was fun. Yep. And semi-related. <laughs> you know, I, he, Martin, Martin and I went to high school together. <laughs> Wait, really? Are you actually being yeah, serious? Yeah, he, well, okay, sorry, sorry. He, we did not go to high school together. He went to the high school, also dropped out of that high school. But then when I was near the time... Martin Screlly and Andrew Morris, basically the same person. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> go on, Sean. Um, you can also donate. I don't think this is public knowledge, but whatever, but he donated a million dollars to our high school, which is how I found out about him. Oh, that's, I mean, that's actually he pretty nice. He retracted 75% of it. <laughs> oh, that's Are you way less serious? Nice. Yeah. 
Because it's why because all the shit happened, right? All the like cases and everything happened. So he was like, I need this money for that's a somehow worse than <laughs> donating <laughs> nothing at all. Because then they allocated those funds like, oh, thank yeah. God we can fix the bathrooms yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. And then it's like, nope. So all of that money what had it? originally gone to somehow the, managed to still be a motherfucker via charity. All of that money was I, pretty much all of that money was going to go to the theater department. Guess who also came out of our theater department? Was it? Oh, I don't know who. Like the guy who made Hamilton and Mignol. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, yeah. That's really yeah, cool. Really Damn. Cool. Yeah. Did Martin Shkreli go to the same high school? Create Hamilton? <laughs> go die. Go die. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, those are my two claims to high school fame. I spent all of high school doing almost nothing but like learning about how computers work and doing various illicit activities, playing music, playing the drums. I was actually really good at the drums and I'm playing and like jamming with people. I worked at a restaurant and so I went and I played the drums in the house band at a restaurant and I wrote a ton of music and I was like screwing around on computers and I was just like doing other just like dumb young kid stuff as one does. And I was basically doing literally everything that I thought was super cool and not school. And when I talk to people about like how and why I dropped out, it's really hard for me to explain to people that like whether I dropped out or not, I wasn't going anywhere like on that track. It just didn't make any sense to me. So it was like I dropped out, but I'd like checked out like years before that. I did not go to class like I didn't because for me, it was so jarring to have to be like somebody outside of school like I was somebody I had a life and there were things that I was good at that I was like you know that I took a lot of pride in I was a really like I was a good musician for how young I was and I was like I was good at computers with things that like nobody understood yet and or very few people obviously and very few in South Carolina certainly so it was jarring for me to go from being like good at stuff and then I go to class and I'm an idiot and then eventually I was just like, Fuck you were one shit. of the few people who I genuinely thought, I feel like I even thought it at the time that like dropping out of high school was a very good decision, like a very good thing because you were going to like find your own path. It wasn't like you were dropping out to just go fuck around. Like yeah. maybe you were. I had to start like immediately busting my ass to like get an apartment and like do stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, the thing that I hit the jackpot on though is that it happened to be the thing that I was really good at was also lucrative, mm-hmm. right? And that's just not the case for a ton of people. So like you can, even if even if you do, like it isn't enough to just like drop out and then like just work super hard, right? Like that isn't something that can work for a lot of people. And so it was just total dumb luck that it happened to be that the thing that I was really good at was like an extremely underserved, complex emerging market that I am now still doing to this day. How did your dad react to you dropping out? I don't remember much. So my dad lived somewhere else. And I remember that both my parents were so like kind of checked out with me at school. Like I had been a very bad student for so many years that there were discussions and conversations and they like desperately wanted me to like not do it initially, but they came around. And uh, actually my, 
like a therapist that I had, like talked to them and was like, hey, look, for like 99 people out of 100, I would say this is a terrible idea. But you guys need to consider that this actually might be the right thing for Andrew. And it might actually like be better than him staying in this place where he's like clearly not going anywhere. And so like the part that made it easier is that there is no coming back from like the grades that I had, like there's no, you don't turn around an academic career like that. Like that was going nowhere fast, right? So it wasn't like I had to think about college. Nowhere would have me. So that was already out of the picture. So then it was already just like, okay, well, Andrew's like probably not going to go to school. And if he goes to a school, he's probably not going to go to a good one. It was very rocky at first. And then it felt natural pretty quickly because then it was like I felt in control. I I got a job that I was good at and then I was like there was some like mobility and uh, I was just dead set on working in cybersecurity. I was just 100 percent dead set on it. I was going to do it if it killed me. And yeah, and just the way that things worked out like that was the right thing. But yeah, it's tough out there. And I still think a lot about that period of time where it was so ambiguous and my life was utterly 100 percent like in my kind of like mind to call, like I just had to make up my mind about like what I wanted to do and then do it. And it's really interesting because that was, you know, obviously like it was freeing, but also terrifying and overwhelming. But I think about it all the time still. Do you think that your dad and like being a military kid in particular was part of the draw to cybersecurity for you? There was a part of me that did when I was younger, really believe that like believe in service and believe in like service to the country and like fighting bad guys and like stuff like that. Right. And I've learned since then that it's, uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but I absolutely a hundred percent believe that one of the drivers for me to do some of the work that I've done before was the fact that I come from a very long lineage of military, of military servicemen and women I wouldn't go so far as to say that that necessarily impacted the cybersecurity bit of it, but it definitely influenced me on like my worldview at the time and my career surrounding that. I would have loved to have just broadly like worked for the military or the Department of Defense or something at the time because that was what I thought like was good and like was the good guys, right? And, And just done what I know how to do for them. But the world was just a really, it was a different place then. And I, my understanding of it was uh, limited. Has that background affected your leadership style? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I have absolutely a hundred percent inherited um, like a lot of my leadership um, style. I think you're a skilled leader. And I, th- I see having met your dad and spent a little bit of time around him. Um, you know, I don't know him super well, but I I see a little bit of that. 100%. I get that from my dad. 100%. Because there's, I don't know whether or not my dad was a natural leader when he was young, right? I don't know that. I don't know that he had like natural leadership inclination or skills or, or, or any of the things that kind of like make a good leader. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that came, for me, that came from him. And that I just watched and I watched the way that he would lead in certain ways, just even in casual situations, the way that he would take responsibility for things, the way that he would make it really clear to everyone, like what needs to be done, the way that he gets you fired up and motivated, the way that like all that kind of stuff, like all of those things are absolutely reasons that I am the way that I am right now. And yeah, and I I absolutely have him to thank for that. I think that there's been a trend like with security founders, right? I think in the past decade or 
even less. We've seen a trend from like the usual security founder that's like 15 years, X Symantec, X McAfee, go to market machine, old white guy in a suit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sorry. I mean, to... I'm a young white guy in a t shirt. Yeah, no offense taken. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But at least it's a t-shirt. Well, I think that like first-time founders in security have looked more almost like the other tech world that is not security. The clients that Andrew and I have worked with, they look different, which is cool. But I think that this is a whole other industry than like SaaS or like, you know. 100%. Like, yeah. What are things, I think you are probably one of those first-time founders that we know who has achieved some like modicum of success, if not a lot of success. I don't know if I have like a specific question as much as like, what do you say to like the first time founders or like what should kind of like first time founders be thinking about or watching or what startups do you feel like should exist or should not or even should not exist, right? Like, I don't know how much we need another next gen EV product, but (laughs) so (laughs) you know, that's me. So I read a couple of questions in between the question and that. Yeah. And the first one was less of a question. It was kind of an observation that you had. The first and second generation of cybersecurity founders was almost exclusively white guys in suits, like Mm -hmm. above a certain age. And Mm -hmm. I think that there is a just massive, massive, just massive like white guy overload in cybersecurity. And there always has been. And I think that it's, You know, it might be a product of the fact that there's a lot of like, you know, former intelligence community, former military people. But Mm -hmm. honestly, the intelligence community in the military is pretty diverse. So like, I don't Mm -hmm. really buy that. The cybersecurity industry has always been like a good old boys club, which is disgusting. Mm -hmm. And the hacker Mm -hmm. community has never been that way. Like the hacker community has always been. And look, I'm young. I have not been around in the hacker community for as long as like even close to a lot of the people that have, uh, you know, that were like the, I don't know, like the forefathers and foremothers cybersecurity mm-hmm. of the hacker community. Um, the hacker community has always been extremely diverse. The cybersecurity industry has always been literally the exact opposite been very non-inclusive and it's just insane and once it gets to be that bad or like that much it's very hard to change like it becomes like it does actually become like a self-perpetuating monster because then you've got more Mm -hmm. people that are hiring more people that like they know how to relate to and like you know stuff like that Mm -hmm. i'm also very glad to see that changing right now which is like just good and happy and exciting i don't really have like as much advice for our other founders and the reason for that is like look I do think that a lot of the stuff that I've done has been really hard and that I've worked really hard at it. But, you know, I do still need to, like, periodically remind myself that, like, I'm coming from a lot of stuff that a lot of people aren't, even though I didn't really Mm -hmm. come from that much. I'm still a white guy in the United States, which statistically puts me, like, nine steps ahead of a lot of people. It just puts a nice wind at your back, right? And it's important to remember that because if I give some advice to someone who, like, that is or isn't the case for, like, it's not taking that into consideration. And it's not, which means that it can either fall flat or it's not useful or it's just inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Like, for some people, it could be like, well, just try your best and just wait to be noticed and be aggressive and whatever. And like, for some people, that's just like mm-hmm. utterly not the case. Right. And so you're just going to like, you're going to lose people. The only advice that I really would have for people is like, just don't quit. Just don't quit. Like, it's the only thing that you have like a good amount of control over. It's actually literally almost one of the only things that you don't have that you have control over is like whether or not you give up. Right. And so like, just don't stop. Just keep doing it. Right. Yeah. 
still a thing. Even that is is easier. It's easier not to quit if you have resources oh, yeah. and you have you know a, a good position in life. Yeah. But one of the things that I saw you doing before you started Gray Noise, and you almost did this with the Gray Noise team this summer, that I more and more have come to admire. I don't know what it felt like, but you have this kind of track record of taking sabbaticals. I remember like you and I were talking and you were like, yeah, I'm going to take a month and go to Croatia. I yeah, think. three, three months. And I went, <laughs> I went to like three Central Europe, some places in Eastern Europe, North Africa, and uh, a couple other places. And that was actually where I built the first, it was in a bar in Bratislava where I built the first prototype of the like gray noise alpha API that I like tweeted about. And it got like just way more traction than I thought it was going to. But yeah, sorry, finish your question or finish your thought. Well, you didn't. So there was the three months, but then I think there was an, wasn't there another time you also took like a month or two? Or am I, maybe I just like thought you came back in between those two. No, I was gone for three months then. That was right when I like, before I started gray noise. And then we obviously, we did a two week shutdown Mm -hmm. in the summer in July and I am just utterly convinced that everyone has grossly overestimated how, has grossly underestimated how stressful this past two years has been yeah. for everybody. Like the fabric of like social society is being like stretched hard in a way that creates a lot of uncertainty in a lot of people's heads all the time. And I think that I only know how to speak for myself and what I have felt but I just had a sinking feeling that a lot of people felt that way. And the politics of like when Trump was the president, how like exhausting the headlines would be and how like exhausting it was to always have people at each other's throats. I'm not even talking about Trump as the president. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about like the way that we were at each other's throats during that period of time, right? So there was George Floyd when he was killed and there was, and everyone was on the streets. There was the coronavirus and we're bickering about masks and shit. There was North Korea. There was serious conflicts with Iran. There were a lot of seriously major fucking issues that we were all supposed to just sit down and work during And I remember thinking, like, the burnout will come out. It will come out of all of us. So I made, I talked to a couple of people and I just kind of said, like, hey, can we do this? And everyone was like, this is insane. And I was like, okay, well, but can we? And everyone was like, yeah, sure. Like, we can do it. And it was before anyone else had started doing it. Now, I'm not trying to, like, you know, sound like I'm cooler than everyone, but it was before we had planned it before other companies had started doing it. And the idea, my thought, was basically the burnout's going to manifest one way or another. I would prefer that people have the ability to decompress on our terms and not on like just during the work day, one day where someone just fucking snaps is just like, I can't do this shit anymore. Or they quit or they just feel like they have to like make some change in their life because they're burnt out. And honestly, like we work so much like in the States and in startups Like, we just work so, so, so much, right? And so, like, I guess just it just made sense in my head. And I was just like, look, I can't. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I can't give my team their loved ones back. And I can't give them, like, all of those months back that we've lost, like, sitting at home. And I can't make this. Like, 
I can't make this better in their lives. I can create like a nice, like safe place to work where people can work and grow and stuff like that. I can't do any of that stuff. But what I can do is give them two weeks with their families or their friends to do whatever the fuck they want, right? Like that's something that I could do. I could give that to them and I want that too. We all like, we all need that. And so it just made perfect sense. And we were just really, really, it's not luck. It's our team has built such an incredible like durable infrastructure, the company didn't burn down even though like no one was there. We had one engineer that was on call for the first week and then we had another engineer that was on call for the second week just in case any shit hit the fan. And I don't really think the shit hit the fan. And Grey Noise kept operating. We had prospects that were still coming in trying to, like we had leads coming in that we just out of office and said, sorry. The crit team got more work done than we had in months. Just teasing. And I know people just really appreciated that time specifically, but people really, really appreciated the gesture yeah. that it was kind of like a thing that we would be willing to do. And like, I would do it again in a second. I was about to say, I have you given some thought to operationalizing that and making it a more repeatable thing in probably not the entire company shutting down for two weeks, but I think people are going to start talking a lot more about sabbaticals. And yeah. I think sabbatical, I've been thinking about this for the last couple of years, like I have a good friend who runs an agency and they do a mandatory one month paid sabbatical for every employee every year. Genuinely cannot think of many better perks Mm -hmm. and things that would be really powerful and invigorating and healthy for the company. So have you given any thought to making some form of the two week vacation sort of sabbatical a more consistent like thing that you all do in the future? No, I mean, I haven't actually thought about making that like a regular thing that we do. The thought did cross my mind initially where I was just like, why don't we just do this every year? Like, mm-hmm. this is cool. Like, it's the 4th of July. Like, we're just hanging out. Like, this is awesome. And like, the Europeans have been doing this for a long time and like, they get along just fine. Yeah. There's a lot of companies that are moving to a four-day work week. And honestly, like, I think mm-hmm. that's fucking incredible. I think that's awesome. I desperately want to figure out some way to systematize and operationalize that as part of the company all the time. Like the form that it would take, I have no idea because there's like so many different moving pieces that I have to check it with against now. And I got to get people on board with it. I'm not copping out. I think it's a great idea. And I personally would, I would love to do more of that all the time, especially like kind of lately when everyone's like just burnt out, right? Yeah. It also forces, it's not only good for the individuals, it's also, you know, something that helps with retention, because there's so few companies competing oh, on yeah. that. There's so few companies competing on that kind of thing. Everyone's competing on salary. No one's competing on, hey, let's give people the most yeah, that's time right. off. Well, um, besides just giving people arbitrary time off and not actually expecting them to use it. And then it also, like you said, it, it was only possible because you all had had built some solid infrastructure. And that's the other thing. It's a pretty powerful force. Yeah, it is. I mean, you need to be able to take a step away from like a system that is supposed to be doing something without human intervention. You need to be able to take a step back and it needs to keep working. Even if you do keep working, you got to work on other stuff, right? So it's a really good forcing function in that way. Yeah, I think that basically like what we're seeing right now, I'm about to go like off the deep end real quick on something that I'm going to say, but like, We've basically seen like just companies are caring relatively less and less about their employees since the 70s. That is provably true according to public rock solid data. Companies care less and less in the form of like specifically like compensation and things like that. Like that is just true, right? And so 
What's positive is that there are places where, you know, companies are trying to like, you know, do better and pay their employees better oversimplification. And I'm throwing, I'm casting a very wide net when I say that. But Andrew, to your point, exactly. Like I a hundred percent think that there's something to be said for selling candidates to come and work for you and, and attracting talent based on like absolutely incredible time benefits and things like that. The problem is like a lot of people view those things as zero sum and it being kind of like, like contradictory, right? Well, we need output. So how can we take time off? Right. And what that isn't doing is just taking into consideration how much more effective your employees are when they feel hundred percent. Right. And when you feel hundred percent, like you're going to produce better. That's a fact right? It's just a fact. And so, you know, I think in times before it was less apparent, like before the shit hit the fan, like a year and a half ago, I think it was less immediately apparent to many that the way that we're working is unsustainable. Whereas now I think everyone is acutely aware that the way that we're working is unsustainable, which needs to happen. We need to be aware of that before any like policies are going to be changing in in these other companies, right? If they want to stay competitive. I have a follow-up, but I've been asking a bunch of questions. Sean? No, keep with your follow-up. I did an interview with Haroon Mir on Monday. Fantastic human being. Loved every second of it. Such I would take person. a bullet and for that man. <laughs> I would do anything for Haroon. One of the last things I asked him was, is it possible to do great work without working kind of obsessively, you know, without working overtime, without pushing the limits? Do we work better when we're rested or does it take an obsessive drive? You are an obsessive person like you. I have seen you just like grind and I have done a little bit of that myself, even though we have tried to build crit on this idea of like balance and creating a better work environment. Sometimes Austin and I have sort of tried to take the brunt of that so that our employees don't have to. Is there a world where that's not required, where we really can do our best work by leaning into that rest and recovery? Or is it more of a, a phase thing where you there are going to need to be phases of obsessive work and phases of recovery and rest? So I don't have the answer. And I am just a dude with an opinion. But I really believe that working there's a paradox in my head you have to be able to work sustainably right because anything that's going to have a huge impact is not something that you can sprint on right it's not something that you can literally just be like oh i'm just going to grind out this world changing thing over like a four day like computer bender right you can't do that really if that's how you feel you're probably feeling like neurotic And like, you're probably just feeling like you have to, it has to be done. But like, that's not how like really great work, like big, great world changing work happens. I think there are spurts of that, right? You can have like inspiration for like a thing and you just, you just, you can't leave the computer until you get it done or you can't leave the the, the work until you get it done. The paradox in my head is that everyone's a little different and some people do actually just get really like ultra focused on something and they just fixate and they just chase, chase, chase until it's done. But the problem is like that requires an absolutely like inevitable, pretty substantial recovery. And other people are a little bit more like locomotives, right? Like it's a little bit more like it's not the fastest thing, but it moves day in and day out and it's solid and it just goes. And so the paradox that I'm kind of getting at here is that 
like if you're going to do stuff that's going to be like super wildly impactful, then it's a marathon. Like it's absolutely a marathon. And so you have to figure out a way to regulate so that you don't burn yourself out. Conceptually, though, I think your question is like effort and energy zero sum. And is it all equally useful and valuable? Is it worth the same? And I think that the answer is no on both counts. I do not think that energy is all worth the same, nor do I think that your energy is zero sum to productivity. I think sometimes you work better than other times. I think sometimes people work better than in other times and in certain conditions. And I also do not think that like people working just like to the bone is required to get fantastic results. Dedication is, right? And like actually like the pursuit of greatness and perfection does drive a lot of more brilliant people. Like it does, it's part of them. There is no universe where you're ever gonna wake up and just be like, I work the way that Andrew Morris works now. Like, I'm just going to sit at this thing and just like blow through it for three days straight or whatever. Like you do what works for you, right? And I think there are certain things that everybody has in common. Like a lot of people just have other shit they want to do to splice up the time and like things to like recover in a little way. And I've burnt out before, like a few times, and it takes a long time to come back from. And so I just think that it sounds like a cop-out answer, but I think that like, I just fundamentally believe that working harder and like working people harder, forcing people to work harder does not produce better results. I do not think that it does. The other side of this is having the humility to acknowledge when the work we're doing is world changing and requires like mm-hmm. crazy dedication. And when it's like, no, mm-hmm. we're we're creating a job. We're we're doing right. some stuff. And That goes back to that conversation we were having at the beginning about mission and impact. Like you Mm -hmm. need to have impact. You need to feel like you're having an impact and you're doing something greater than that goes beyond yourself in order to fight burnout as much as you need the recovery. But also having Mm -hmm. the humility to say the world is not going to fall apart if you know we're not we're not solving cancer. We're not right. We're not curing cancer. Yeah. The world is not going to fall apart if we take a break here or if we work That's right. nine hour days instead of 12 hour days. Sean, is there, are there any other topics you wanted to hit on? I've got a dumb question that we can end on at some point. Let's end on the dumb question. What are you all going to be for Halloween? Oh man, you know, I really wish that I hadn't cut my hair like a month ago because I wanted to go <laughs> as Joe Dirt. What is Joe Dirt? Yeah. What is, is Joe, Joe Dirt? Dirt? Only the greatest movie of all time. It's a Uh, stupid movie. It's very funny. I highly recommend that you watch it. Sean, what are you going for Halloween? I don't know. I don't don't remember the last time. Okay. I think when I was watching Squid Game, there was a thought of going as a Squid Game character. But All right. I like this. Now I also want to know what's the last Halloween costume you remember. What is the last? All right. I got it for you. So I have not dressed up for Halloween in years. The last time that I did, it was probably like five, six years ago. And I was in Charleston with like West and Camille and Ellis. And and I was, got it. Yeah. And I was, uh, I didn't have anything. I wasn't dressed up as anything. I didn't have a costume. And one of the girls had a, like this, like set of like cat pajamas or like cat onesie or something. It was like a, a, a cat print onesie or something. And so I put it on and then I just super low effort, like eyelinered some like whiskers onto my face. And then I went to this 
shitty bar in Charleston. And I was sitting there just at the bar drinking and someone came up to me and they were like, hey, what are you? And I just said, I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) And like, no one thought that was funny but me. I thought it was like the funniest shit I'd ever heard in my life. Like I've been riding that wave of Halloween costumes. But that was the last time that I remember dressing up, to be honest. I was like, that was probably six years ago. So Maddie and I are going to Chicago for Halloween. And I am dressing up as Louise Belcher from uh, Bob's Burgers. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to wear, are you gonna wear the dress. pink dress. And I got, she's got the pink yep, I got my pink bunny ears. Yep, yep. All right. I like I my that. Pink bunny ears that. So I'm going to be Louise Belcher with a beard. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. That's cool. I dig that. Is there a gray noise Halloween party? There isn't. You know, there aren't really a lot of Halloween parties this go around. No, that's, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I did learn that uh, Supriya is making Halloween goodies and she's bringing them into the office tomorrow, which nice. means that I will definitely be in the office tomorrow. Nice. <laughs> cool. Well, Andrew, I'm going to embarrass you for a second. Oh, Jesus I just want to say genuinely thank you. You are one of my best friends. I love you dearly. and. This podcast, Sean and I wouldn't have met each other without yep. Grey Noise. Crit is on a wildly different trajectory than we were before Grey Noise. Like, so much of my life has been very majorly impacted by you. And I'm so thankful for you and glad to call you a friend. That was the nicest thing anyone has ever said to me. I love you, Andrew. Sean, I love you too. Thanks, man. You guys are awesome. I'm really glad that you guys met. I'm really glad that you guys did this podcast. And Greg was telling me like the other night how much he like loved listening to this podcast and has started listening to it every single episode. And he listens to a He will hate this episode. He listens to a (laughs) shitload of podcasts. So if he says that a podcast is good, like it's good. That's really kind. You guys are awesome. I'm just happy that you guys wanted to have me here and were willing to sit around and talk to me for two hours. Thanks for being the- I've had a really good time. second first interview of a podcast of ours. And also, uh, I just want to second, you know, what Andrew's saying, like, you know, miscreants and podcasting and everything like, you know, knowing you has also helped launch my career and all the things that we've done. And also meeting because of Andrew, I've now met Andrew and that has also done wonders. So it's super. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you guys. Seriously. I really let the guests figure out which Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it a lot. Like, I, I really, really do. I'm just grateful that you guys. I'm grateful that you guys asked me to be on here. I'm grateful that you guys are alive and healthy. So yeah, thanks for having me. Seriously. Likewise, friend. Love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye. (laughs) You just listened to Small Efforts, a podcast collaboration between Crit and Miscreants, hosted by Sean Sun and Andrew Askins. Sean is a hacker turned designer and the founder of Miscreants, a creative agency building memorable brand and product experiences for cybersecurity ventures. Andrew is an engineer turned CEO and the founder of Crit, a product design agency that helps cybersecurity founders create better products. If you enjoyed this podcast, rate us on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. You can check us out at smalleffortspod.com. Thanks for listening. See you next episode.